I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And welcome to Montalino Mama. Welcome back to another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Francois Grosjean, a world-renowned expert on bilingualism and biculturalism. He is currently an emeritus professor at the University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland, and he's also an expert in several research areas within bilingualism. But today, we're going to discuss his personal journey with bilingualism in two sub-areas that we haven't discussed in this podcast yet. Biculturalism and the bilingualism of the deaf. Welcome, Francois, and thank you for agreeing to do this interview. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Um, so, to get us started, uh, can you tell us about your linguistic background? What languages do you speak growing up? Yes, um, my, my father was French uh, and um, uh, my mother British. They met in, in London during World War II. Uh, we didn't stay that uh, long uh, with them and uh, they divorced very quickly. And my sister and I lived in a small village in France uh, um, until the age of eight. And that's when my mother uh, took me and put me into an English boarding school in Switzerland and then uh, moved me to another boarding school, uh, a Harry Potter type boarding school in England. So basically by the age of 18, I was British um, and you can hear it in my accents. In fact, uh, um, I was ready to go to college in England, but uh, basically I, I had to go back to France uh, and uh, it wasn't that easy because uh, I had to reactivate my French. I had to catch up on many subjects uh, um, that my French peers knew about, uh, and uh, I had to adapt to French culture. I talk about all of this in my in my book called uh, A Journey in Languages and Cultures. That's a very uh, very European story. Um, can you talk catch us up a little bit on what your language experience is like now? What languages you currently speak with your spouse, your children, and your grandchildren? I believe. Sure, sure. So basically, we speak French to one another, um, but we often switch into English uh, depending on the situation, the topic, the presence of non-French speaking friends, etc. Uh, and we're very much a code switching family. Um, and has that changed over time? Has that ever been different? Yes. Um, when my wife and I were in our 20s, um, uh, we moved to the States uh, for what we thought was going to be a year and it became two and then three and then many more. And in the end, we stayed for 12 years in, in the Boston region. So basically we were like an immigrant couple with young children. Um, our older boy was only 20 months old when we arrived and he quickly picked up um, English in his daycare. Um, we continued speaking French to him at home, but very soon as many uh, bilingual parents know, English prevailed. We weren't too worried uh, because we thought that uh, we'd be returning uh, uh, to France quite soon. But uh, when his brother was born, uh, bo uh, came uh, four years later, uh, we did try to um, reactivate French in the home. But again, uh, English got the better of us. And so basically we became a French, an English speaking family. Mm -hmm. However, uh, French wasn't uh, totally lost because uh, 
when I had my first sabbatical, eight years after arriving in the States, um, we came to the French-speaking part of Switzerland, and uh, that's where uh, the, our kids picked up French. Uh, after about six months, what? they spoke it quite fluently. And so we basically, little by little, switched over to French in the home. And um, going back to the States, we kept French alive um, by means of various strategies that I cover in, in my bilingual life and reality. And then when we came back to Europe for good, uh, several years later, French remained um, the family language, but English is right there. And um, so we're basically a, a French-speaking bilingual family. And you said you also speak some Italian? Yes. Um, uh, when I was young, my mother uh, lived in Italy uh, after having been a top model, as it were, oh, as wow. it was in Paris uh, uh, with Jacques Griff, uh, one of the couturiers there. She then left for Italy and uh, became a racehorse uh, breeder and trainer. Uh, and she had a horse farm, and I spent some vacation time there. And uh, I, I picked up Italian simply by wor wor working uh, on the horse farm uh, and spoke it pretty good until I didn't use it anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. And is your wife French? My wife is French, yes. So what would you say are the differences between being bilingual and bicultural? Now, the definition, as you know, that I use for bilinguals is the regular use of two or more languages or dialects. I mentioned dialects because in Europe, it's very active. Dialects are active in everyday life. Uh, as for biculturals, uh, I characterize them by three traits. First, they take part to varying degrees in the life of two or more cultures. Uh, second, they adapt, at least in parts, their attitudes, behaviors, values to these cultures. And third, they combine and they blend aspects of the cultures involved. Some characteristics come from one culture, others from the other, and they're, they're also blends. So contrary to bilingualism, there's um, where it's possible to deactivate language. I'm deactivating my French currently. Uh, and um, uh, in biculturals, you can't really deactivate all the traits that you have uh, uh, and hide your uh, French side, your, your English side. Uh, in a monocultural environment. Uh, one of the, an example I have is maybe a Colombian American bicultural who uh, blends aspects of both the Colombian and the American culture. Um, and um, this often comes through uh, in both Colombian and in an American environment uh, and leads to comment, uh, comments of the type, oh, you've become so American when you're trying to behave as a Colombian. That's the big difference, I think, um, with uh, bi bilingualism, where mm -hmm. you can more or less, to, to a large extent, uh, deactivate your other language or languages. So would you say that you can be one and not the other? Absolutely. And this is one of the myths that's around that so if you're bilingual, you're automatically bicultural. No, in fact, uh, they don't go hand in hand. Uh, you can be bilingual without being bicultural. Think of all the Europeans who speak two, three, four languages and uh, belong to just one culture, live in one country, belong to one culture. And you can be bicultural without being bilingual. It's uh, a bit hard to find examples, but uh, for example, the British person who uh, comes and lives in the States and after many years, of course, his accent changes a little, but uh, he's become bicultural, but is still monolingual unless he knows uh, he or she knows other languages. 
Now you can become um, uh, bilingual once you can become bicultural at different points in time. Uh, children, some children are born within bicultural families, so, but others come into contact with a second culture outside their home or in school. And um, some become bicultural by pursuing their studies in, in another country. And uh, adults uh, emigrate to other regions of countries and slowly acculturate into the cultures. So they're very, they're two different entities. And I'm just sorry, after all these years in the field of bilingualism, that we haven't given enough importance to, to biculturalism. Yeah, I think that's a really good point and interesting to point out that just like bilingualism, you know, there can be early biculturalism, late biculturalism, and kind of all yeah. different types yeah. fit under that umbrella. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about your research with um, the deaf population and, and sign languages? What differences or similarities have you found between hearing bilinguals as uh, compared to deaf bilinguals, if any? Now, uh, what I'll do is concentrate on what, are, what is called bimodal bilingualism. That means uh, sign language and oh. one uh, form of an oral language, even if it's written. Uh, the users of sign language are often, in fact, bilingual. One language is sign language, for example, American sign language. Mm -hmm. The other is the language of the hearing majority, often in its written form. Uh, we know that they have problems speaking it. Now, these bilinguals share many similarities with uh, bilinguals uh, that have two or more oral languages. Um, uh, deaf bilinguals are very diverse. Some are deaf, some are hard of hearing, some are hearing. The hearing children deaf parents uh, are bilingual mm. uh, very often. Many do not consider themselves to be bilingual. That's another problem with being bilingual, if you want. Uh, they use their two languages um, for different purposes, uh, in different domains of life with different people. And uh, another similarity is they communicate differently depending on where they are, who they're addressing, whether the person um, knows two or three languages, knows sign language or not, etc. But there are also aspects that are uh, specific to the bilinguals and um, of, uh, uh, of the deaf, um, uh, one of which is that there's no widespread acceptance that they have a right to be bilingual. You'll never, um, well, you can, but let's say in our societies, you accept that somebody is bilingual, but in the um, in deaf world, uh, they find that the hearing majority do not often accept that they'd be bilingual. In fact, mm -hmm. I'm the author of, a, of an article that's gone around the world called The Right of the Deaf Child to Become Bilingual, to, to be bilingual. Thus, many deaf children uh, are not given the chance of mastering both a sign language and an oral language from their earliest years on. And uh, in many societies, many regions, a purely oral education is preferred uh, for them, even though many of them may not adequately master the oral language. Um, mm -hmm. So as a consequence, they have a problem communicating because they don't communicate well in the majority language and they haven't been given a chance of, um, of learning sign language. So I've been a, a proponent uh, of helping these people and these children become bilingual, both in the sign, in the sign language and uh, the, usually the parents' language, and then let them choose later on which, uh, how strong they want their bilingualism to be whether they want to navigate towards the sign language end of their bilingualism or towards the majority language end of the bilingualism. That would be a dream. But, you know, 50 years on from the research I did, uh, 
it's still a bit of a dream. And in many countries, it's still it's far from a dream. It's, it just doesn't exist, I'm afraid. And it's, uh, it's really too bad. Right. Yes. In some places, it's even hard to convince people that two oral languages is, is not, yes. is okay. So oh, yes, um, yes. yeah, that would be a challenge for sure. Um, you mentioned that they do have a lot of similarities with other bilinguals. Do they code switch in the way that we normally think of it with uh, spoken languages? When the deaf are communicating with monolinguals, they restrict right. themselves usually to just one language. And uh, therefore, what, I, what I've called, they're in a monolingual mode. Uh, they deactivate their other language, as we're doing now with our Spanish and Italian and French and whatever. And um, as best they can, uh, deactivate as, as best they can um, and stay within the confines of the language that's being used. But in, at other times, uh, deaf bilinguals find themselves in a bilingual mode. Mm -hmm. They with other bilinguals who share to some extent their two languages, a sign language and the majority language. And so they can use both. They can intermingle their the languages. And of course, that will depend on such factors as how well they know the two languages, uh, uh, who they're talking to, they're communicating with, the situation they're in, the topic, the function of the interaction, etc. Don't choose a base language and then bring in the other language uh, um, in the form of um, code switches and borrowings. Um, and uh, they, they'll do this, uh, it, it's complex, uh, much more complex, but the, um, bringing in the other language can be through signing, through fingerspelling. Well, remember, fingerspelling mm -hmm. is... Uh, part of the majority language, uh, mouthing, um, uh, etc. So uh, it's, it's, um, it is a form of intermingling. And it's got a name. In fact, it's called contact signing. And um, it's being recognized more and more, which is a good thing. Um, and would you say that deaf bilinguals are also bicultural by definition? If we use the three uh, characteristics, the three traits that um, I gave for being bicultural, uh, there's little doubt that uh, many deaf people meet these three criteria. They live in two or more cultures. Many of them do, if they've got the chance of doing so. Mm -hmm. They adapt at least partly to these cultures. And I saw when I worked with deaf people how they adapted to my hearing culture and they, and they blend aspects of these cultures. Uh, now, of course, such factors as deafness in the family or not, age of onset of deafness, mm -hmm. degree of hearing loss, type of education, etc. We need some deaf people to have fewer contacts with the hearing world, mm -hmm. while others have more. Um, uh, they change their bicultural dominance. So that's one thing we didn't talk about, but you can be dominant uh, in one culture or dominant in the other. But it's nevertheless true that I, um, deaf people who, who have the chance of um, being brought up with uh, both a sign language and a majority language um, are, are both uh, bilingual and, and bicultural, yes. So you would, you would say that the deaf community does share its own culture and they feel like that, that is different than the, a hearing culture? Oh, it's, um, you know, when I arrived in the States, uh, as I was telling you at the beginning, uh, it was to uh, to work on uh, the renaissance of uh, sign language and, and deaf culture. And uh, we had uh, research assistants who were deaf, and they, they told us about their culture. And it was, for me, it was 
the eye-opening moment in my life. Um, I knew nothing about deafness. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about um, the deaf culture. And I was amazed. I was impressed. I was sad also that for a hundred years that they'd not been allowed to sign, not been allowed to be a, a part of their own culture, not given the means of uh, celebrating their culture, which is so different. Uh, so I, I rejoice mm -hmm. now that in many countries, Western, Western countries, uh, sign language is now recognized, deaf culture is now recognized, and um, it's, it's just wonderful. And just to clarify for our listeners, American Sign Language is not just English signed, correct? Absolutely. Sign languages are very, very different languages. Uh, they're visual, uh, gestural languages. Uh, with a smile, when I used to teach, I, I tell my students, if you want to learn a very different language, don't think of Russian or Chinese or Japanese. Think of sign language. It's a human form of communication. It's a natural language, but it's so different. It's so very different. So it's definitely not uh, a spoken language on the hands. Uh, and in fact, it's a difficult language to learn and uh, to be uh, fluent in. But it's also a wonderful language because it's uh, it can be so poetic. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the National Theatre of the Deaf. I mean, it's just a incredible what uh, they can do with their sign language uh, because they can use the, the language along with um, other expressions along with mime it's uh, they can do poetry in, in sign language and they can say in sign language i mean uh, it's using sign it's just a, an amazing amazing language and um you touched on it earlier but for parents or educators out there there's from your perspective there's no reason why you shouldn't advocate for bilingualism for a deaf child for example there's no reason to stop a deaf child from becoming bilingual okay. uh, and in fact there are good reasons to help him or her be bilingual um, when you're deaf uh, it's extremely difficult to, to acquire a language a normal language uh, uh, and you need uh, a means of communication to help the child acquire that oral language. And sign language is the natural language of the deaf. Uh, children are extremely, and you know as young parents, that uh, children are, are visual beings before becoming oral beings. Unless they cry a lot, but I hope they feel <laughs> um, But um, uh, it's, uh, and uh, giving them sign language is a gift to help them later on acquire um, the oral language. And uh, that's why in, in, my, in my paper, uh, my, uh, the right of the, bilingual, of the deaf child to become bilingual, I give various reasons to, uh, to encourage people to become, uh, to raise their children, deaf children, uh, bilingual. Now, I, I, I realize, I mean, I've been in the field long enough to realize how difficult it can be for hearing parents to have a deaf child. Uh, let's keep in mind, 90% uh, of deaf children are of hearing parents. They're not of deaf parents. Uh, and suddenly telling parents, uh, you got to learn sign language, mm -hmm. you got to teach sign language, or get your, your child to learn sign language, and you've got to become a signing family. That's a big, big step. Uh, and so parents, many parents go down the medical route, but um, language is much more than the medical route. It's, uh, it's a way of 
communicating, loving, um, thinking uh, together, interacting, uh, communicating. And um, if you don't have a language for your child, um, it's, it can be extremely frustrating for both the parents and the child. And sign language does away with all of that uh, while the child is, is growing up. That's a really interesting point that it can become not a choice. <laughs> You have to, the parents are just kind of thrown into this, to this world. Yeah. So we're going to change gears a little bit. Um, and since we created this podcast to really help parents who might not have a background in lingualism or multilingualism, we were, we're constantly asked things related to what languages should I choose? Uh, should I do this from the beginning or not? In your experience, uh, would you say it's better to raise your kids simultaneous or in an additive way? If possible, if that was a choice for the parents. I thought about your question this morning, and I'm not sure if there's a better way of becoming bilingual. Um, of course, children who acquire two languages simultaneously have been the object of many studies. Uh, their parents adopt, often adopt an approach that allows them to receive two language inputs. Uh, but in fact, they're much rarer than children who acquire their languages successively, less than 20%. The majority of children uh, start monolingually. Then they, uh, they first acquire a home language, and then usually when they start going to school or outside and, um, and playground, et cetera, they, they acquire a second language. And literally millions of children have gone in the world have become bilingual in this manner. And then, of course, all the children can become bilingual, young adolescents, and there's no upper age limit for, for becoming uh, bilingual. What I try and uh, say is that um, the main factor that leads to the acquisition and development of languages is the need for that language. If there's one word I'd like to stress um, in this uh, little interview is need, need for language, need to interact with the others, need to uh, have a language to study or work, to take part in social activities. If the need is present, then the language acquisition will take place in one, two, three, four languages. There's no limit. Uh, this is true of children, and this is true of uh, adults. Now, of course, there are other factors that have got to be present. Uh, there's got to be enough language input, and this is crucial. If you don't have much input, you're not going to develop the, the language. You'll have to have um, uh, supportive family and friends and colleagues and a community. For some, you need some formal language learning, uh, and you have to have positive attitudes towards the language and the culture. Make the child understand that it's really good to know um, English and Spanish or whatever the language is. Um, um, now, some ask, isn't it better to start becoming bilingual as early as possible? And my answer is really depends. This really depends. If, um, uh, for example, as concerns need, a second language may not be needed early in life, hence the fact that bilinguals may not develop um, uh, then, but will uh, later on. And if the need is not present uh, for a language, then or no longer present, then the language may not be acquired or may become dormant. Yeah, can you expand upon that a little bit? What happens if a child is exposed to a language, but then is deprived of that input for whatever reason for an extended yeah. period of time? In my blog, uh, my Psychology Today blog, from my Psychology Today blog, I interviewed uh, a specialist in language loss, uh, Professor Monica Schmidt, uh, and she states very clearly that before the age of 12, children can and do lose languages if they stop using them. 
there are some very interesting case studies of children fluent in language, uh, losing it in no time, simply because they don't need to use it anymore and they don't use it. Mm -hmm. And I give a well-known example in my uh, most recent book, Life as a Bilingual. It concerns a little American boy, Stephen, who uh, acquired an Indi Indian language in India uh, quite fluently because his nanny was a Garo speaker. And uh, within four or five weeks, uh, his dad um, says he completely lost it when they left the, the Garo Hills. So you can, children can lose languages. Um. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people sometimes think of children or, you know, being young as this like magic, you know, bullet that you can learn 10 languages with just like one hour of input a week. And that's just not the case, it sounds like. You can lose. Now, now, one of the questions you asked me is, can they regain knowledge right. in the language? Mm -hmm. And that's also a fascinating, okay, it's a really interesting question. Um, uh, for some, if not too much time has gone by, then the reviving the language is possible, okay? So don't give up. <laughs> for others, uh, for, such as ad adoptees who uh, right. uh, started learning Russian or Korean, it's an empirical question as to how much of the original language is still there. And there's been some really nice research in my recent book, um, Life as a Bilingual, I, I talk about this quite a bit, so, um, uh, of studies uh, trying to see how deep in the mind and the brain uh, is the original language. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was fascinated by uh, a study I read uh, just recently, in fact, but it's an older study um, of uh, using hypnosis to see what is still there. Um, and um, in this study by um, uh, Professor Fromm, and if you go to my blog, you'll see it. It's, it's quite recent, in fact. Um, uh, she uh, regressed uh, um, uh, through hypnosis a Japanese-American student who couldn't speak Japanese anymore, okay? He hadn't spoken Japanese in years. And she regressed him to the age of eight. He was English-speaking, and uh, they did everything in English. And then she regressed him to the age of three, and he broke out in fluent Japanese. It was just fantastic. And he spoke it for many minutes, and she recorded him. And uh, she was so surprised, and he was too when he came out of his trance wow. to hear himself speak Japanese. So there's, a, there's something there, but it's <laughs> just very, very difficult to get at it. And I'm not saying that everybody should be hypnotized, but we talked about my Italian that I haven't spoken <laughs> in so, such a long time. Hey, I, I'd be ready to be hypnotized and regressed and back to when I was eight and nine and <laughs> speak beautiful Italian, that would be fantastic. <laughs> sure. Um, some of the research that I've seen has suggested that maybe it there's more of the pronunciation or intonation kind of hidden deep in the brain, as you said. Is that something that you've seen or um, not necessarily? Yes, um, uh, I agree. In the papers that I review, uh, there was one done in McGill uh, a few years ago where uh, the tone language aspect of, uh, of Chinese was still there. Um, but um, uh, it's it's bits and pieces, if you want. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's uh, uh, the the little you know, the child uh, will not come out speaking that language. It's uh, it's very difficult research. Uh, 
but it seems to be maybe um, such things as tones, um, certain aspects of the pronunciation, but it's, it's not that clear. Yeah. I mean, the, the clearest example was, uh, was this uh, regression via hypnosis. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we we've seen an increase in studies out there showing us that there are a lot of advantages to bilingualism. But I want to ask the opposite <laughs> from a personal standpoint. Um, have you found any disadvantages to being bilingual in your life? Um, I, my main problem was when I was a child and adolescent. Um, as I said earlier, I was taken out of my natural French environment at the age of eight. And I re-entered it at the age of 18, okay? Uh, and uh, no one had prepared me for what I was going to be facing. Um, at 18, like many um, heritage language uh, children, I, I spoke French without an accent. Uh, uh, but my God, uh, my uh, lexicon was extremely small. My grammatical knowledge was not very good. Um, uh, I didn't know the various levels of style and repertoires, etc. I didn't write French very well. Um, uh, I certainly did not write like my 18-year-old peers. On the cultural level, I suddenly realized that I belonged to neither culture. Mm. Um, I'd always been considered a stranger in, uh, in England, but uh, I was also a stranger in France. Uh, so I, there were so many things that I didn't know about my home country. Now, of course, I wasn't a foreigner to whom you have to explain everything because I, I had no accent and I spoke the language. Um, but um, I make mistakes. I, I I wouldn't know certain things. Uh, I didn't know about French customs and habits. I uh, I didn't know how people interacted, uh, what was expected of me. And uh, in a word, I was a rare bird. You know, with a French uh, with a name like François Grosjean. Yeah. I mean, you can't have something more French than that. With no accent, just people didn't know how to interact with me. Uh, and and the and the expression heritage language did not exist at the mm -hmm. time. Um, so um, that was really my experience with difficulties. Uh, other problems have been uh, have been mentioned uh, concerning bilingualism, but I think they're far less profound, uh, at least with me. Um, I don't like making interferences. That that is intrusions from the other language uh, when I'm speaking one language, and I've probably made a few interferences have, as yeah. I'm to you. Okay, it's uh, they're, they're there. Um, I hate to have to translate something or interpret something because very quickly it's going to be in a domain that I don't use uh, English or French for, okay, and what I call the complementarity principle. And I hate speaking the wrong language when uh, somebody, for example, wants to practice his or her French on me, but it would be so much easier to do it in English. Uh, I, I really want to speak English, mm -hmm. uh, but the person insists on speaking French. So out of politeness, I speak French, but usually the communication breaks down after a while. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a few problems, um, but um, the, the main one that I mentioned uh, could have been done with if I'd been basically accompanied in my own bilingualism, and we'll come to that in a few minutes, but uh, parents have a, an objective of making sure that they accompany their children in uh, bilingualism, biculturalism, and if they do so, uh, everything will be just fine. I really appreciate you being so um, sincere about your challenges because everyone, you know, thinks of you as this, you know, expert, bilingualism and it's it's nice to hear that 
even you have had some challenges depending on the domain or um, the environment. Yeah, uh, I think most people would, in fact, if they're honest. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's not always uh, easy, and uh, and uh, that's why. I, 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 again, on my blog and now in my recent book, Life as a Bilingual, I do have various um, sections on the advantages. But I, I'm, for the time being, I'm non-committal. Uh, I, uh, there's, there's been a lot of up and down, and uh, for the time being, I'm slightly disappointed by the reversal in the literature. So I'm holding off uh, on, on that question. And I'm glad you asked me about disadvantages because I would have founded if you'd asked me about advantage, cognitive advantages, there are many, many life advantages, right. cultural advantages, linguistic advantages. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, when a child can speak um, Spanish to his or her grandmother, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, so, uh, but for, on the cognitive side, uh, I have, um, I have worries, let's say, in a, a nice diplomatic way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you, you were able to live in the U.S. for 12 years, which in your book, you say you're very appreciative of and you enjoy that culture. Um, but I'm curious to see what differences you have observed as a bilingual in Europe and in the U.S. Maybe you could discuss those a little bit with us. Sure. I found Americans much more relaxed uh, about bilingualism than Europeans uh, and more ready to accept that it is simply the regular use of two or more languages in everyday life. Um, mm -hmm. Europeans are often not satisfied with this less restrictive definition. They insist that you have to have equal fluency in your languages and that you have to have been born, uh, raised as an infant bilingual when others uh, might have learned a second language at eight or 12 or even 20. Mm -hmm. Another difference I find, I, I find is that in Europe, um, you find bilingualism due to immigration, which is uh, what you mainly find in the States, it's due uh, to immigration. Uh, but um, here it's also uh, due to well-established uh, societal bilingualism right. due to the makeup of countries. Um, Span Spain, for example, or the country I know well now is Switzerland, where we have four official languages and many immigrant languages. So we're in a bath of, um, of languages as well. And finally, in, in Europe, um, learning and speaking other languages is simply a fact of life. Um, um, you know, in school, you learn a second, a third language, especially in small countries like Switzerland, the Netherlands, uh, Sweden. Whereas in, in the US, it's still rather special. Mm -hmm. Although, in fact, uh, I showed, because I've always um, maintained my interest in the bilingualism in, in, in bilingualism in the US, that there's been an incredible rise of bilingualism in, in the United States. Uh, when I wrote my first book, I know it sounds old, you must think I'm uh, an old man. I am in a way. But um, when I prepared my uh, life um, um, first book, 1982 book, I started looking at the statistics. And at the time, there were about um, 7 to 8% of Americans or inhabitants in America that were bilingual. And the percentage is close to around 20 to 20 23% now. So it's, uh, in fact, I, I wrote a post, uh, a blog post just recently called The Amazing Rise of Bilingualism in the United States. Uh, people can go to my blog and, and see it. It's it's just fantastic. It's uh, I put a graph there and the function is just rising, rising, rising. And, uh, uh, and it's, it's just... Well, and after they listen to our podcast, it's going to continue. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, do you know what the numbers are in Europe? Is it more than 22? I, I looked, I, I, um, in my various books, I've looked at, uh, at numbers and um, really depends on the country. Uh, so big countries, um, uh, basically monolingual countries like England and France, uh, you'll find 22, 23. So America is a bit like uh, France, a bit like uh, England. Um, but in smaller countries, uh, because uh, you need other languages, uh, the percentage uh, can be quite high. So in Switzerland, it's around 41, 42% of the people wow. who use two or more languages. Okay, And uh, in a small country like Luxembourg, it's uh, 60%. So mm -hmm. it's just amazing percentages, um, uh, which you won't find in, in larger countries. It makes sense in larger countries. No can. They do with exactly the magical word need. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of what I would have yeah. assumed. Can you talk about your how your children lived through the experience of moving from the U.S. to Switzerland? Yeah. Now, both boys um, um, uh, spent their youth in the States. Uh, in fact, the older boy was a little league uh, baseball player, and uh, I really got hooked onto baseball. And we'd go see Red oh, Sox no, games. Oh, no, Red Sox. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. Yeah. It's, uh, and um, I was really, I loved baseball, seeing him play and then going to games. And then he said, oh, I'm, I'm giving up baseball. I'm going to hockey. So he played hockey, and I had to grab onto hockey. So I enjoyed hockey. And then he yeah. went to Taekwondo. And, you know, I'm still keen on baseball. But anyway, uh, when we came <laughs> back, uh, we had two American boys. That's what I'm trying to say, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, one 14 and the other nine. And um, they had yeah. a good French-speaking base because we'd spoken French at home for three years. But, of course, they didn't master the writing and reading of the languages of, uh, of French. And so we worked hard uh, with them on these to slowly bring them up to par. And it took a few years. They also didn't know Swiss or French history. They, they didn't know the literature. And of course, there are other languages. You have to start uh, German very early on in the French-speaking part and French in the German-speaking part. And so we, we had some you know, our work cut out for us. Um, mm -hmm. It was a challenge. It was a challenge for them. It was a challenge for us. But we worked together. Uh, we accompanied them. Mm -hmm. And the final result is, um, is just great. Uh, the older one is um, in his 40s now is trilingual. And the younger one, also in his early 40s, uh, speaks five languages on a regular basis. Wow. So it worked. It worked. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> and do you, do you have any sense of their identity? Do they consider themselves Swiss? My uh, discourse with them has always been, and I think it's theirs too, that is that we are a mosaic of cultures. So instead of having to uh, choose, uh, are you one or the other, uh, we say we are a bit of several things. Uh, I've always considered myself now a, a mosaic of four cultures. Uh, and um, and I think that's what they think themselves. I, of course, they've lived in Switzerland a greater part of their lives, so the Swiss aspect is, is important. But they, they also know that they have this American uh, uh, part to them. And uh, because uh, their um, grandparents uh, French, they all, and we often went back to France to see them. They also have this uh, knowledge of France. So I, I think that's the best way to offer it to children. You know, you are, you have many things, and um, it's by putting these various things together, these cultural aspects, that you are who you are. That's at least the way my wife and I have always presented it. Yeah, that makes sense. No reason to 
pigeonhole yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask, how old were your children when you moved to Switzerland? Yeah, so when we finally came back from the States after our 12 years in the States, one was 14 and the other was nine. Yeah, that's quite the age to yeah, know. Well, I don't know what would be the ideal age, but 14 is a tough age no matter what. Yeah, for sure. So since you're a parent on top of being an expert, I'm assuming that since you've discovered so much about bilingualism um, in these years that you've done, you've done research, what do you think are some of the mistakes that you have made? And we could now a new generation of parents raising bilingual children learn from? Yes, yes. In, in my book, A Journey in Languages and Cultures, I relate how my wife and I we're not careful enough um, in nurturing our uh, first boy's French uh, when we moved to the States. Uh, we thought that since we were a French-speaking couple, uh, he would quite naturally continue to use French with us. Um, but um, uh, we didn't think that uh, fitting mm -hmm. in uh, to the English-speaking environment was far more important uh, yeah. the, the social multiple aspect than, than Hitler's, if you want. In addition, we knew that uh, he also spoke English. Uh, he knew that we also spoke right. and speak English, spoke English. And uh, as I often say with a smile, bilingual parents are not always the best friend of their bilingual children mm -hmm. because uh, the child goes for the majority language, for the uh, friend's language, for the school language. And um, so little by little, he, he dropped his French. Um, had we been aware back in the 80s uh, of everything we know now about bilingual children, we would have done things differently. Um, and uh, it's probably one of the reasons I spend so much time on these issues uh, now as, uh, as a writer about bilingualism. And then beyond that, do you have any other advice for parents going through the, the process like us? Let me mention five very quickly. Mm -hmm. Five. Um, bits of advice. Okay. Um, uh, the first one is uh, if you adapt a strategy to promote bilingualism, the one person, one language uh, strategy, or the one language in the home, the other language outside, be aware that the situation can change over time. A second language, a second child is born, friends come into the home, you move, uh, children start going to school. And so be ready to adapt your strategy. Don't, don't follow it blindly and don't be too stressed by it. Um, that's the first piece of advice. The second one is keep monitoring the environment to ensure that the child has a real need for both languages and that he or she is receiving enough exposure to those uh, languages. Exposure is, is so crucial and it's got to be, if possible, human exposure. It's um, DVDs and TV and all that are fine, but you really need people interacting with them. Uh, grandmas and grandpas are just great, uh, uncles, whatever, okay. Uh, third piece of advice is um, make sure that your child gets both types uh, of mode of communication. Sometimes um, uh, what I call the bilingual mode, where he or she can code switch as with parents, bilingual parents, but also monolingual mode, so, mm -hmm. so that uh, he or she realizes that there are people who don't know his or her other language, and um, they got to keep to just one language. So it's crucial to to make that uh, <clears throat> to differentiate the, the mode of communication. 
the fourth piece of advice, and then I'll just do one more. It's crucial that parents and, and all those who take care of uh, bilingual children be informed about um, how children become bilingual. That's where the linguists come in a bit, okay. um, and how they retain their bilinguals and what it means to be bilingual, what code switching is. Uh, I've often said to a smile, if only I was the richest man in the world, I'd give my bilingualism, uh, life and reality book to all parents bringing up bilingual children because I, I'd love them to at least read a few sections to know about what it means to be uh, bilingual. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this knowledge about bilingualism will help them comprehend the development of their children and prepare them for the appearance of various bilingual phenomena. Otherwise, they'll be caught, caught cold and they, it might just create some stress. Mm -hmm. And finally, I think um, parents have to understand the cultural changes that some children or adolescents go through if they move from one country to another or one region to another. Um, Many children experience culture shock and they don't talk about culture shock, but that's basically what it is. And, and we need to help them during that transition phase. And my dream was uh, is that if only my parents had known about all this, uh, maybe they would have helped me through it. Could you talk a little bit about the kind of support that you have to give your children when they were nine and 14 and had to move overseas? What does that look like on the parents' side? We talked about what it meant to be uh, changing countries, uh, uh, what it meant to suddenly do things in a different language. Uh, of course, school at that age, those ages, 14 and 9, is, is crucial. So we spent a lot of time doing homework with them, um, um, helping them, uh, 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 but talking. It, it was both doing the homework, catching up on German, on history, on literature, encouraging them. When times uh, were tough, we'd um, help them through. There was a lot of um, coaxing. There was a lot of uh, coaching. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, I, I think a mixture of those things, but plus just support, just parental support, if you want, uh, help them through. Now, of course, it wasn't easy all the time. Uh, grades uh, were not always great, okay? But uh, whenever we could, uh, we'd help them. And I mean, kids are, uh, adapt relatively well. They were both liked by their friends. And and uh, I, we noticed that, in fact, some Swiss monolingual boys would um, speak um, very simplified French to, mm. to our older son uh, because they knew that he didn't understand French very well at the beginning and uh, it was just amazing you know and these uh, future lawyers and doctors uh, were really making an effort and uh, there's, there's some good work by the way that I talk about in, um, in my book Bilingual Life and Reality by sociolinguists of how um, others can help um, uh, children become bilingual. Uh, it's it's just wonderful how ch children who are becoming bilingual catch on to social strategies, but also how the, the environment can help those kids become bilingual. It's it's just uh, marvelous. Um, so um, could also be helpful for teachers working in like a K yeah. through twelve public school working yes, with. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you want to, uh, you can ask me for the reference. And, um, yeah, uh, we will uh, put all of those things that you've mentioned in the, in yeah, the just description. Just write, write me an email and, uh, and, um, and I'll write to you. Now for the last question, which is uh, an interesting question. Yeah, how do your children feel about bilingualism and having a famous bilingualism expert as a father? 
both boys and now men have been very supportive of my work over the years. In fact, um, several of my books, um, I've just published number 13, so have been dedicated to them. This said, I I do try not to mow them down too much with information on bilingualism and biculturalism. And whenever the the subject crops up during a meal, for example, which it often does, I'm more of a listener than than a speaker as I've, in fact, always been interested in how my field is seen from the outside. Mm-hmm. I'm extremely sensitive to how people perceive bilinguals and what they say about it. Uh, so at dinner table, I don't sort of pontificate. I, I listen and I let them speak what they want to say, tell me what they want to say. And uh, now it's my grandchildren's turn to have books dedicated to them, mm-hmm. such as the very last one that came out a week ago, Life as a Bilingual. And they too are very cool about their own bilingualism. Um, and uh, if we're praying and I go on uh, for too long about something linguistic, which I try not to, they quickly get me back into the game that we're praying or the story that I'm reading to them. And in the end, that's exactly how it should be. That's wonderful. And neither of your boys are linguists or language, no. you know, nothing uh, specific. Uh, no, no, but they do make uh, interesting um, comments. Um, uh, the younger one uh, uh, went on a um, one-year exchange program to uh, Belgium uh, from Switzerland, um, uh, interacted with the Spanish um, uh, students there, and basically learned Spanish in a year, and he speaks very good Spanish, and he's kept all these friends now, 10, 15 years later, they exchange photos of their babies and all that, but I'm just amazed, uh, you know, so they, they taught us a lot about uh, what it means to be bi or multilingual and, uh, and what you can do with language. No, no, I'm, my children have been wonderful, but I, <clears throat> I do try not to uh, put too much pressure on them to sort of uh, do the kind of stuff that we as linguists do, which is to reflect to, you know, the meta aspects. Uh, no, bilingualism is also living. <laughs> so we we move with languages and, uh, and not and don't comment too much. That's good advice for us. <laughs> <laughs> Be very careful. <laughs> um, so that was the last question, but is there anything else that you wanted to mention or talk about? That we didn't no, ask you about. No, I think uh, I think you guys uh, asked me some great questions. I, I I think what you're doing is just fantastic. Um, uh, what, what we don't, us researchers don't realize, is that there are a lot of people out there, and um, uh, they're not ready to go and read an academic book on bilingualism. They they need uh, go-betweens, intermediaries, and uh, uh, you guys do it well. Uh, and I tried to do it to my blog. It was a sort of uh, resource, and mm-hmm. people can go to it at any time. Uh, uh, I stopped it after 10 years because I'm doing other things. Uh, so we need to um, do the research, of course, but we also need to tell parents and encourage parents and be with them and children, uh, you know. And um, so I think uh, you're doing a great job and I encourage you to continue and, and uh, to enjoy the bilingualism and biculturalism of your own families. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're very thankful. and. Um... We can wait to keep reading your work and learning from it. Thank yeah. you so much. It was wonderful to hear like the human behind the research. Yeah. There's, there's a guy behind. Right. You know, 
I, I know what you're saying, what you're saying and, and many people have told me that. I'm first and foremost uh, a father, a husband, uh, a grandfather now. I love being a grandfather, you know. <laughs> Thank you again. Everyone will be back soon with another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Thanks again. Hasta luego. Au revoir. ever have questions for us or questions about the podcast, go to home and our website at www.multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned for another episode of Multilingual Mamas.